Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. I met Terrence Glassman several years ago. He is an architect. He provoked my curiosity when he spoke of the multiple dimensions inherent in the correct designing of a healthy living space. Then I learned he was part of the architectural team to design the living space in the U.S. Space Station. We are fortunate because he agreed to tell us about the challenges and thought processes needed to provide a good living space for this extraordinary ordinary project. Mr. Glassman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. In 1984, President Reagan gave NASA the go-ahead to build the space station. It seems that this was going to be a fundamentally different kind of architecture, and I'm full of so many questions. One personal curiosity is, how do you design a confined living space and still allow the astronauts to have physical comfort and psychological privacy? And I know it may even be silly at one level, but I find it intriguing to think that no one has the need for a table or chairs when they're sitting and eating. I, I think we've all been all visually spoiled by Star Trek. Let's start with the paradigm shift architecturally needed insofar as what a living space has to be when it is relatively confined and there is no gravity. What were your original mandates? Tell us the story, please. The story begins in the 1970s when, if you recall the story, uh, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, he talked about the original astronauts who were selected who were primarily test pilots. And when NASA started building space vehicles and the first space laboratory was built in the early 1970s and operated between 73 and 74. These facilities were built primarily by engineers and did not accommodate any of the comfort issues related to the personal needs of the astronauts. When this project came about and they started with the early Apollo, the engineers who had worked on the earlier stations were primarily oriented towards designing for efficiency, which was engineering efficiency. It was the astronauts themselves that ultimately went on strike while they were in space to demand more attention being given to the physical and psychological comfort of them while they were on board. As a result of that, NASA set up the Ames Research Center, which is up in Palo Alto, California, and the Ames Research Center was the first facility in the early 80s to address the category of environmental psychology. At that time, what happened was that NASA, needing to bring some expertise into the space program from outside, they were planning to issue three parallel grants to MIT, Berkeley, and the Institute for Future Studies in Santa Monica, which I was the director of. It turned out that neither Berkeley nor MIT could meet the criteria of the NASA program because of the bureaucracy of the university and the costs involved. So we were given the initial grant to develop programming for the space station, which was looking at what were the needs and what were the activities and what were the factors. In looking at that, one of the things that we studied was the difference between surviving and living. And it gets into an aspect of what it's like when you go camping for a short period of time, that you can put up with certain inconveniences, but 
over an extended period of time, it begins to impact what you're there to do. We found that up to 30 days, the astronauts could cope with normal inconveniences that you might experience in camping. But because the missions were set up to be on a 90-day cycle, we had to really address some of the personal needs. And there is a hierarchy of personal needs. We go back in architecture, we deal with Malinowski's theory of needs and the hierarchy. There are issues to deal with privacy, even in a small situation. Now, the space station was designed by putting together a series of cylindrical geometries that were delivered into space using the space shuttle and the cargo bay. As a result, the dimensions of it were 14 and a half feet diameter and 42 feet long. These were the individual pods, which were then connected by nodes to form a network of these. The one that we focused on was what they called the human habitability module or the crew quarters. The issues we had to deal with had to do with control of one's environment. There are a lot of practical issues, for instance, with the design of the crew quarters itself. You've got equipment in there to accommodate three astronauts on a normal schedule. And then during changeovers, you would have six astronauts on board. There are so many different factors that come into it. One of the first ones, safety, meant that everything we designed for the interior space itself had to be movable to be able to inspect the outer shell of the station so that you could be sure that there wasn't anything, any space debris or asteroids that are penetrating any of the external shell. So things had to be done in a way that allowed that kind of flexibility and adaptability. In architecture, there's a tendency to look at things from the visual phenomenon. That is looking at what does the building look like, what are the materials, and things like this. Dealing with the space station is quite different because the issues has to do with just the atmosphere inside the capsule. And because it's like being in an airplane where you've got the internal atmosphere, which is being recycled, all materials have a principle called off-gassing. And for most of us, we're most familiar with it when you sit inside of a new automobile. And that smell that you get is actually the off-gassing coming from the materials of the new car. Sometimes it's the vinyl from the dashboard that as it heats up, it's giving off this off-gassing. Well, in a space station, which is a sealed environment, that off-gassing is toxic. And so... We found early on that the materials were critical in terms of using natural materials, which would not become toxic and would not ultimately poison the astronauts. They actually had an instance where an astronaut brought a magic marker on board, and the magic marker set off all the alarms just because of the off-gassing from the ink in the magic marker. You have that kind of issue. You also have issues dealing with our own biology as human beings. 
I worked with a fellow named John Ott, who created the Ott Light, which was the full-spectrum artificial lighting. He had done a lot of research on how light affects us, and we find that our whole circadian rhythm, which regulates the balance of our body, of when we go to sleep, when we're awake, everything that we feel in terms of the way we work, is regulated by light entering our endocrine system. And what it is doing, we found from research that dawn and at dusk are the two times of the day where the light entering the, the endocrine system actually alters the rods and cones in the inner eye. This is what resets our circadian rhythm to keep us in balance with the normal day-night cycle. When you're in space, it's a totally different experience because what's happening is that you are experiencing a day-night cycle every 90 minutes because we are orbiting the Earth. And as a result, the time it takes us from when the sun appears one time to where it disappears and reappears, we're talking about 90 minutes. That's an important factor because we have to be able to regulate the light in order for us, for our bodies, to work normally. And there's lots of research on what is referred to as SAD syndrome or seasonal depression, which occurs in northern latitudes on this planet. What happens is we find that our bodies actually operate on a 25-hour cycle rather than 24 hours. And it's a bit like a pilot who is flying across the country. What happens is if you actually look at it, the plane is off course about 90% of the time. And what the pilot are doing is course correcting the whole time because you have intervening variables like wind speed and direction and air currents and so forth. And so our body is the same way. Given the absence of light, our body balance shifts by one hour every day. And they found this as a problem working with workers in northern latitude up in the North Sea that were working on oil rigs and people who are in submarines where they're removed from the natural light cycle. There are these aspects which are subtler on Earth that we're less aware of, even though they do impact us, which become profound when you're in a zero-gravity environment outside the context of the Earth. What about, I, I, and again, I'm speaking from my perspective, but one of the things that strikes me is privacy. I've seen pictures of the sleeping quarters. They look like they wrap themselves in the equivalent of a sleeping bag. Where do they go just to be alone? Where do they have things that are their own spaces? How did you approach that problem? That's a good question, and it is an important issue. The emphasis in a lot of situations like this is more tends to be more on the communal. And we find from a lot of behavioral research that our ability to function communally or socially with others is also a factor of our ability to experience some sense of privacy and separation and seclusion. And that these two things are either end of a spectrum, so to speak. And we looked at different aspects 
of that. One of the things we looked at was is a notion which is referred to called personalization of space. One of the best articles that I read many, many years ago was written by Robert White at the University of Chicago, and it's an article called Motivation Reconsidered the Concept of Competence. And what he did was to survey all of the research that had been done up to that day to look for what were the common behavioral issues which affect us. And he came up with this notion of affectance motivation. We see it in all the different sciences as well as in the design of the environment itself. We are designed to interact with our environment. And to the extent that our environment is responsive to us, is it actually reinforces that behavior. So we find beginning with children, if you put children in a static environment, they are less stimulated, which means that there's less formation of synapses and dendrites in the brain. The more opportunity they have to experiment, explore, and interact, the more formation of synapses and dendrites occurs, and that tends to reinforce this whole process so that that stimulates exploratory and creative behavior. This is something which is true throughout life. And as a young architect in the 1960s, I had the opportunity to meet Richard Neutra. Neutra was from Vienna and was a friend of Sigmund Freud. Neutra coined a term which he called biorealism. He wrote a book called Survival Through Design. Neutra presented the concept that just as we prescribe a therapy or we prescribe medication, he said we should also prescribe an environment, that the environment has as much impact on us as these other factors. The basis for that was looking at our evolutionary biology, saying, for instance, that our eyes have evolved over millions of years from a green environment. The point was that it's not just that we enjoy having nature around us, but we have a biological necessity for some of these things in our environment to feel a sense of comfort. So there's a direct relationship, and as you've heard me say numerous times, my work was inspired by and based on a quote from Winston Churchill. We shape our environment and thereafter our environment shapes us. All of the work that I've done and the project I've been involved with are looking at that interaction. One of my mentors was Buckminster Fuller. Bucky's commitment was to making the world work for all humanity through what he described as design science. So early on, For me, it was about being a design scientist because defining oneself in disciplinary terms, the way our society is organized, if somebody is an architect, it presupposes that what they do is design buildings. As a design scientist, I'm interested in creating environments which nurture the development of human potential. So it goes beyond that. It taps into this larger notion of how we make the world work 
for all humanity by using our resources and our intellect to serve all of humanity. As Mahatma Gandhi once said, there is enough for everyone's need. There is not enough for everyone's greed. It's about looking at our technology. And from the time that I started, when we had the first computers, the UNIVAC computer was the size of a building in the 1950s. Today, what I'm talking to you on, this iPhone is a computer that I carry in my pocket, which uses a fraction of the material and performs much more extensively than the computers we used in 1969 to land on the moon. That's the principle of doing the most with the least. And that's a principle of design science, which I employ. So you were then, this is fascinating, you were then asked to take a, I'm going to go back to the term that you had used, a paradigm shift in the standard architectural approach to a living space because you wanted to produce a good, healthy, shall I say, representation of living on Earth, but in space, because if you're on Earth, you can make a window, you can put a patio, you can walk outside. So you had to take all of that into the design, a holistic design to the inside of the space station. I, I hope I'm saying this with some sort of clarity. You're, you're very clear, and what you're, what you're actually touching on is the most profound existential aspect of this whole program. And it's something that I'm keenly interested in and which NASA was not ready to address. And that is, as you said, to create accommodations like what we have on Earth. Well, let me tell you something, first of all, which is explain the fact that when we go into space, we begin to change physiologically. In microgravity or zero gravity, all of our internal organs begin to shift. Now, there's a practical reason for that. What happens is that when you are in space, the reason that NASA had the 90-day schedule was that the early research we found that you could be in microgravity for 90 days and not suffer any permanent physiological, biological changes. At 90 days, your bones are beginning to decalcify. The practical reason is that if you're in zero gravity, you don't need bones. Our bones are structure which support our organs in a gravitational field. As soon as we go into space, it begs the question, what does it mean to be human? Does it mean having a body that looks the way you do or I do or the people listening to this do? Or does it mean that who I am is not dictated by what I look like? I know, for instance, I can lose a part of my body, an arm or a leg or whatever, and it doesn't change my identity as a human being. question is, are we dedicated to preserving this form of physical being or are we looking at becoming more what we would call universal beings, which means that we are going to change physiologically for sure as we move out of the gravitational field of the Earth's biosphere. We know that the Earth's biosphere is a unique condition. We are moving into a realm where we're beginning to explore other dimensions. And as we do that, unless we take the conditions of this planet with us, 
in terms of having a gravitational field and things like that, we are naturally going to change, going to evolve into some other form. And there are futurists like Raymond Kurzweil, who thinks that ultimately we are going to shift, and this is rather esoteric, from being carbon-based life to being silicon-based life. And there are arguments for that in terms of the creation of these computer systems that are learning machines. I was involved with the architecture machine at MIT in the early 70s, where they were working on the early stages of developing computers that could go out and program themselves. This question of where are we going as a species, what are we attached to, what does it mean to be human, are all questions which I find profoundly fascinating, which are attached to this notion of life in other dimensions. Which becomes, again, in a somewhat circular manner, such a fascinating offshoot of the fact that when you were asked to be part of the group that designed where the astronauts would eat and sleep and shower and go to the bathroom, it evolved the paradigm shift into looking at all these other elements that are part of the, I'm going to use the term, the architecture of our lives. I agree. The irony is that NASA was just looking at it as how to put human beings into this cylindrical shell and keep them alive for 90 days per mission. There are certain fundamental things. My answer to your earlier questions, in a real practical sense, you were talking about tables and chairs and things like this. We find that in microgravity or zero gravity, it's natural for the body to take on more the shape of a fetus in that kind of curled up condition. You don't need a support like a chair in order to support your weight. What you need is something to anchor you so that you're not floating around. What we did find that is that as human beings, we communicate almost as much non-verbally as we do verbally. When Marshall McLuhan wrote the book in the 60s, The Medium is the Message, he was really talking about how we communicate in many different modes, and our body language and our expressions are as much a part of our communication as in our language. And I'm sure as a therapist, you read those kinds of things, and your listeners are tuned into those kinds of things. When you shift the axis, so you have people on different orientations in the same space, it changes all of that. We found that it was necessary to have a table per se, which created a kind of common area, a common reference point for the astronauts to gather around and share information and exchange ideas and be able to relate to each other with facial expression and body language and all of that, and not just through verbal communication. There were certain aspects of it like that where we felt that it was important to incorporate traditional elements. Now, the table that we put in was something which adapts from three to six people, because during a 
crew changeover, you had to be able to have the incoming crew and the existing crew on board be able to get together during that time. And so we had to have elements that were adaptable. We also had to have elements that were adjustable. We worked in three stages for NASA, and this was all done under the guise of the Institute for Future Studies at the Southern California Institute of Architecture in Santa Monica. And in the first phase, we were given the issue to develop the programming, which was looking at what were all of the needs, the activities, the spatial requirements, all the different factors which the design had to accomplish. Part of that, then, we were working with a team, and these were graduate students at this institute together with myself and another faculty member. We developed a whole series of conceptual alternatives for the design at the first stage. So we had a dozen different solutions. And from those, we were able to develop a set of definitive criteria to be able to look at each of the solutions and evaluate it in terms of the extent to which it accommodated specific NASA criteria for the design, plus the issues that we brought to the project as well. We presented all of that to NASA at the end of the first stage. NASA was very pleased with the results and gave us, this was under a research grant, they gave us a second research grant on top of that to take of these multiple designs to pick a few conceptual alternatives, and we identified three different alternatives. One was something we called a softscape, where everything was incorporated, the, all of the surfaces were basically of soft material. There was nothing that an astronaut could impact or be injured by, anything like that. That was one concept. Another concept which used a central core, which allowed everything to be hung off of this central core with a central circulation area to be able to move through the space and be able to adjust and adapt. And then there was a third system where it, everything was modular and could be interchanged. We built full-scale mock-ups of this in our studio of the 14-and-a-half-foot by 42-feet-long space and developed full-size mock-ups to test. That was in the second stage, and NASA was very pleased with that and gave us a third grant. And in the third grant, we took the best ideas from each of the three solutions we developed to refine and develop those further for flight testing. We had some of the students who went on board the NASA, what they used to call the Vomit Comet. They did their flight testing, and it provided 30 seconds of zero gravity on board. It was a 747 that was cleared out on the inside, and so you could be in it, and the flight went on a parabolic curve. So when it got to the top, it would start to drop. And as it was dropping, the 30 seconds from the top down to the lowest point created a condition of zero gravity. And all of this was filmed to study and develop these alternatives. Now, one of the reasons for 
all of the work we were doing was because NASA was working with the aeronautical industry and Boeing and McDonnell Douglas were contractors. Their objective was to be able to use their off-the-shelf technology. And so we were brought in as a kind of design think tank to see, well, if we were to design it with the intention of really addressing some of these unique issues of living in zero gravity, what would that suggest? What would that produce? That was our task, and we were dealing with both the practical, the physical, and also some of the biological, physiological, psychological, all behavioral issues, as well as thinking about what does this mean for human evolution. A fascinating series of uh, thoughts and images, but I must ask you, and I know this is probably after you were no longer involved with these projects, but the psychological needs of mixed sexes in the spacecraft. Humans are humans. We have feelings. We need privacies and the like. Any thoughts about the evolution of both male and female astronauts on the same missions? It seems to be working fine from what I see, but I don't have the inside data. We have to qualify that right now we're dealing with very special people who have been highly trained and prepared to be able to go on the space station and spend up to a year on board living and working. Most of us would find that rather difficult. There are fascinating issues when you start talking about the male and female issues. We had to look at that not from a male-female, but the fact that as the space station expanded, you had different groups, organizations, countries occupying different parts of the space station. So there were all kinds of issues about how do you preserve the privacy. For instance, if you were to imagine the space station growing from the way it is currently built, if you were inside of it, it would become not unlike being in a subway station where you're going through tunnels, and these are all linked together. There's all kinds of issues that come up about how do you get from point A to point B? How do you orient yourself? And as an architect, we have something which Kevin Lynch called the image of the city, where we have reference points that help us. So as we're driving around, we can look up and we can see something as a landmark, or we can find the edge of an area, which might be the ocean, or it might be a district we're going through, or it might be a pathway. These are all elements of our physical world, which help to orient us. When you're in a subway, anyone who's experienced that knows that you're dependent on signage and colors, graphics to try to find your way through it, because it's very disorienting. Well, that suggests that we need to find a new method of creating living space outside of the biosphere of the planet, which gives us a sense of orientation and comfort and reference. And it applies to different cultures as well as the male-female issues, because we're looking at how do we create that balance between what we know as community and privacy, the ability to create yourself individually and the ability to relate to others. In our society, we do it through graduated scale. We're individuals. We belong to a family or a small group. 
From that, we identify with the next larger group, which might be our neighborhood, might be our profession. And from that, we relate to our city, our region, our country, and the planet. But we have this graduated sense. That's reinforced by the structure of our environment. So how do we provide that sense of orientation when we're designing in a whole different realm like space? I personally could sit and listen to you for hours. That is not an option for us. Thank you so much for taking us through this process to everything you're saying. And all I want to do is say thank you. And I'll say it again. Thank you for being with us. And I thank you as well, because my mentor, Buckminster Fuller, used to say that the one common denominator that led to extinction of every species on this planet that has become extinct was over-specialization. And Eric Erickson, who I worked with at Harvard, talked about the fact that our professional organizations become like fraternities or cliques where we develop our own language. And as a result, we have these boundaries between disciplines. The only way we're going to make the world work for all humanity is by reintegrating our profession, by finding a way to talk across disciplinary lines and find ways to apply what you develop in your discipline and your insights and your understanding, combining it with what I'm doing as a designer to create healthy environments which nurture human growth and development. Absolutely. Mr. Glassman, thank you so much. This has been an incredible tour. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dr. Strauss.